This is episode 68 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and joining me to preview the Edmonton Oilers' first round series against the Los Angeles Kings are two contributors for heavyhockey.com, Ryan Lotzberg and Regu Sharma. Guys, how's it going tonight? Good, Eric. How are you? Man, I'm doing good. How are you guys? Doing, doing great, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having us on again. This is, uh, this is awesome. It's been a while since I've spoken to both you and Lotzi, so uh, great to great to do it and ready to kind of see this playoff run start. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it is good to talk to you guys again. Actually, you know, before we even break down this uh, upcoming series that we're just two days away from, I wanted to start by just talking about a game that we were at uh, two weeks ago tonight at Rogers Place where Leon Dreisaitl scored a hat-trick to record his third career 50-goal season in a dominant 6-0 win over the Anaheim Ducks. Dreisaitl also became the first Oiler to record consecutive 50-goal seasons since Wayne Gretzky and Yari Curry in 1985-86 and 1986-87. Additionally, the Oilers clinched a playoff spot for the fourth consecutive season that night. So when you guys think back on all the Oilers games you've attended in your life, where does seeing Dreisaitl score his 50th live rank for you? Uh, Ryan, you can start us off tonight. Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, game seven for the Kings last year was a big one. Opening night in clo- opening night at Rogers, closing at Rexall were two up near the top of my list as well. The Omar Spinorama game, that one always sticks with me. Oh, that nice. A cool moment. But, uh, I mean, maybe not the top of my list, but it's in the conversation for sure. I mean, it was a big accomplishment, and it was really cool to see live, especially because we weren't really expecting it to happen. But, uh, yeah, it was really cool. Maybe somewhere close to the top five then? Yeah, somewhere to, we'll say top five. That's safe. <laughs> I mean, a hat trick to get your 50th is pretty amazing, and especially because you and I were – sort of joking before the game, wouldn't it be something if you scored a, a hat-trick tonight to get to 50? Yeah, we kind of spoke it into existence. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Regu, you weren't sitting with us, but we did have a chance to catch up with you between periods. Uh, watching Dreisaitl score his 50th goal must have been one of the most memorable games you've ever attended as well. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's funny because Lotsy mentioned Game 7 against the Kings last year. I was at that game. Um, I've, I've seen... Uh, McDavid hat trick before that was the first dry sidle hat trick I've seen and and even furthermore to your point there uh, that was his he scored that hat trick as a Gordie Howe hat trick right it was an even strength power play and shorthanded goal so I don't think I was expecting that either and um, I think the other thing that will make it special for me is that's the first time I've been to a game where the Oilers actually clinched so seeing the 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 clinched icon on the board. Um, I think that was great. On on top of that, that was a great game for Jack Campbell too. Uh, we recorded back-to-back shutouts with Skinner getting one the night before or two nights before against the Kings. So um, yeah, there was a lot of positive things there um, uh, for the team as a whole. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a, it was a night to remember for sure. Um, this was actually the second 50th goal I've been lucky enough to see in Leon's career. I was at the game in Calgary uh, in April of 2019 when he hit 50 for the first time. I would say this one is maybe a little more special because it was on home ice with the Oilers Mm -hmm. fans there, you know, with the hats raining down for a hat trick as well. Thinking back to that 2019 game, 
Oilers fans were very excited, but only for a short amount of time, because if you remember, that was the game when McDavid tore his MCL. So it's kind of a bittersweet night for me that uh, I did get to see a, a big milestone in Dreisaitl's career, but it also had a very negative ending with uh, McDavid suffering such a significant injury. So I would put this one pretty much close, close to the top two. I mean, the first game I ever attended in 2006 that that one will always stick out for me uh, uh my first ever playoff game last year I was at game one against the Oilers and Kings um and then going to the 2016 Heritage Classic in Winnipeg like those are the ones that instantly come to mind but uh yeah I mean getting to see a 50th goal that's one that you're not going to forget and now we'll uh, go into the Oilers and Kings playoff matchup, and it will be the ninth time that these clubs have ever met in the playoffs, as well as a rematch of last year's opening round series, which the Oilers won in seven games. And after the Oilers dropped the first two games against the Kings this season, Edmonton picked up a pair of low scoring victories over Los Angeles in the past three weeks. Knowing that the Kings will want to play a tight checking style against the Oilers, how much did those two late season wins increase your confidence that Edmonton will win this series, regardless of what type of game the Kings throw at them? Regu, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, I, I think having a rematch against the Kings is is going to be interesting because there's been a lot of changes on both sides. Uh, as mentioned, I was at game seven and I can talk about how tense that environment was as a one nothing game. And in that series, they didn't have Victor Arvidsson. They didn't have Drew Doughty. Um, they've made major acquisitions this year, um, getting Fiala at the deadline, getting Gavrikov and Corpus Salo. Um, and outside of the Oilers, they've been a strong power play team in the second half of the season as well. So I think some of the keys to successes that I see, first of all, I do think that the Oilers will win that series. I think the way we've been playing right now in the second half of the season and since the deadline uh, should should bring a lot of confidence to our fan base and to our players. Um, but I think some of the keys to success will be uh, finding a way to break through their 1-3-1 trap system. Um, that's something that they kind of, uh, they, they wait for the right opportunity. They make it difficult for teams to kind of break in offensively. They play the dump and chase game. Um, so pressuring the D into making mistakes in their own zone is going to be huge. And uh, the Oilers are going to have to remain dominant on special teams. Uh, the power plays was an all-time high best power play in, the, in NHL history. And their PK really improved in the final 21 games as well. I think it was over 80%. So um, that those, those are the biggest keys that I see uh, for the Oilers succeeding in the series. And Ryan, uh, did those two wins for the Oilers boost your confidence in their ability to beat the Kings at their own game? I would say that they did. I mean, the Oilers showed that they can put the clamps down defensively in those two games. And like they showed it at other times during the season, but only in select moments. Right? Like that wasn't something that they brought consistently throughout the year. So like it brought, gave me a little more confidence, but maybe I'm still a little hesitant <laughs> to say, yes, this team can lock it down on command. But we know all the Oilers can score number one scoring team in the league. And we know now that they can defend like Matthias Ekholm was a huge addition 
And uh, so now instead of having a top pair, we have a top four. So that, that really makes things different. And like the Kings, I mean, we out hit them in both of those games too. And the Kings are a very physical team. They won a lot of puck battles, which, I mean, size has a little to do with that. But a lot of it is positioning, a little bit of will. So the Oilers are going to have to put up more of a fight than they did in, in that respect. But no, again, I'm not super scared here. Like I'm confident the Oilers can take this series. Yeah, and if I could just add one thing, just on top of what Ryan said about how these last two games were tighter checking and more hitting, let's not forget that Evander Kane didn't even play in those other two games against the Kings earlier in the season. And I don't believe DeHarnay did either. I could be I could be wrong on that one, but... No, I, he debuted just, the game after the, the second Kings game. That That's what I thought. So just ever since he's become a member of this team the size element, the physicality element. The Oilers are no longer that team that gets bullied. They actually are the bullies. So I can see um, those being major parts where we, we no longer need to fear any, anybody kind of hitting us. Even you, you see it in McDavid and Dreisaitl. Half the time they're hitting and out hitting um, players on the other team. So I, I think those are some of the more significant differences that actually played such a big part in those being such tight checking and low scoring two nothing and two one games that that we witnessed against the Kings. Yeah, and as well, you know, guys like Darnell Nurse or Clem Costin. There, there's more players who can add a physical element in this series if if it turns that way. And, and we are pretty sure that uh, as it gets to this type of year, it's going to become a tighter checking, more physical, grinded out kind of style. I will say, you know, looking at those two games and specifically that the Oilers won, it did give me an added boost of confidence just seeing that there's this perception that the Oilers always have to outscore their mistakes. Mm -hmm. And there really haven't been a lot of mistakes to outscore. I mean, yes, they are the best offensive team in the league, but they've also been one of the best or one of the better, I should say, defensive teams down the stretch here. Uh, There was a, a six game uh, span towards the end of the season where they only allowed four goals back-to-back shutouts followed by four straight games where they allowed a single goal when you have a team that can score as much as the Oilers can if they're playing that well defensively that's a problem for the rest of the league yeah couldn't couldn't agree more like you like you said that that final stretch of games uh including even the seventh game it was they that was like the first two goal game we'd had in quite some time so you're right if we can lock down defensively you know the oilers can score three goals minimum a game (laughs) oh yeah without a doubt um all right Uh, while there's plenty of familiarity and bad blood between these two clubs there's also a lot of new players on both sides that weren't involved in last year's playoff series let's start with the oilers which player who wasn't on the team a year ago do you think will be the biggest difference maker for edmonton in the first round and why Ryan, you can go ahead. I feel like uh, this one's a pretty obvious one, but it's Matthias Ekholm. Just the way he's stabilized the blue line ever since he's got here. What is he, plus 28 or something? Yeah, he's plus 28 in uh, 21 games since he's been here, and he's contributed 14 points as well. He's stabilized. He's. I mean, I did a piece on Bouchard just after the trade and talking about putting some respect on Bouchard's name because he was playing well before Ekholm got here as well. But 
he's just complimented Bouchard quite nicely. So they've given us a second pairing that you could argue is a top pairing and is just another smart shutdown defenseman that play both ends of the ice. He's even playing some power play for us on the second unit. So I think Matthias Ekholm is the oiler that's or the new oiler that's going to have the biggest impact on this series. And Ragu, which player making his first playoff run with the Oilers do you expect will be the most impactful? Yeah, I mean, I overall second what Lotsy said about Ekholm. He's clearly been an obvious difference maker, but I, I kind of want to put some more focus on even our other acquisition in Nick Bugstad, like his ability to win face-offs, play penalty kill, and be such a significant factor in that third line, which... To be honest, the Oilers, I think one of the things a lot of people have talked about is their inability to get depth scoring. And we had like 12, 10 goal scorers and Bouchard, I think, was close having eight goals. So I really think that what Nick Bukestad can provide uh, being a, a, a reliable faceoff man, the, the strength he offers on the penalty kill, I think those are things, aspects of the game we're going to need because we don't know how the refs will, will call the game and a strong penalty kill will um, special teams always play a part. So I think he would be who I would think would be um, a, a second difference maker. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I believe he set the franchise record for uh, best faceoff percentage in a game in his Oilers debut going 10 yeah. and 0 in Winnipeg. So that's, I mean, right. that, that's a pretty good start. Plus he scored a goal in that game. And really, I think that was a, a subtly good move by uh, Ken Holland to bring him in. And there were some people that were concerned about giving up one of the Oilers better prospects in Michael Kesselring for him. But mm-hmm. I didn't see Kesselring breaking into this defense anytime soon, especially with uh, Dayarnay sort of being the seventh guy. Now it just, there wasn't a spot for him and for the Oilers to bring in a player who can help them win right now as a third line center, depending on if Ryan McLeod's back, he might go down to fourth line, but just having that, extra veteran presence who can win draws in the bottom six that that's such a valuable piece to add and of course going back to Matthias Echo I I have to agree that I think he'll be the biggest difference maker in this series you just look at what he's done for this team he's made them such a harder team to play against defensively and um, I think he's also underrated offensively as you mentioned he has 14 points in the 20 games he played and uh that's an aspect of his game I didn't know we were getting. Uh, he's also helped unlock Evan Bouchard to where he was a year ago. And we're starting to see that pairing flourish. So when you've got Nurse and Cece on the top pairing and Ekholm and Bouchard on the second pairing, that makes the Oilers a lot tougher to play against. And their record since he arrived is 18-2 and or sorry, 17-2-1. So, I mean, I, I think it's a pretty obvious choice to go with him as the Oilers' biggest difference maker among new players. And uh, turning our attention to the other side now, the Kings have made some new additions over the past 12 months as well. Uh, which new Kings player do you think could have a big impact on the series? Regu, I'll go back to you. Well, I think the most interesting one for me would probably be uh, Fiala, just with what um, that acquisition really did for them as a new player. Um, but I, the, the player I actually think will have the most impact for them will be uh, Kempe. Kempe got 40 goals this year. That was the first Kings player to get 40 goals since like 
the early 90s. Um, so I'm actually expecting Kempe to play a big part, uh, just like he did in last year's playoffs. And, uh, and I think it's going to be important to be able to shut him down. Um, and, and just, just one other thing I want to add is, as I mentioned, Arvidsson and uh, Dowdy were both missing in last year's playoffs. So them being part of the system will actually make this Kings team um, a, a much tougher out this year than last year. Yeah, good point by you too. And uh, I believe he was the first, uh, Kempe was the first Kings player to score 40. I want to say since Luke Robitaille in 1993-94, I believe. Uh, that was also Wayne Gretzky's last Art Ross trophy as a in his NHL career as a member of the Kings. And um, I think you, when you look at uh, what they have to offer with the, the new additions they made, plus there were a lot of injuries last year. You could... They're not necessarily new players, but there are players who will be new to this uh, playoff environment against the Oilers. Uh, and Ryan, which new Kings player should the Oilers be most concerned about in this series? Hey, I uh, <laughs> Regu kind of went where I was going to go with Arvidsson and Doughty. They not necessarily new Kings, but they didn't play in the series last year, and they, they, I think that's going to be a huge thing to look at. Um, Looking at their defense, like last year, I thought that was a big question mark, especially without Doughty. But this year, they've got three new defenders that weren't in that series last year for varying reasons. And, like, I mean, Gavrikov adds a little something to their second pairing. And then Sean Walker didn't play in that series last year. So it just they've upgraded in a few spots on their defense, which I think will really impact the series. But the guy I'm eyeing. If he's healthy, which he may or may not be, because I know he hasn't played for a good portion of the month, is Gabe Velarde. He had 41 points in 63 games as a rookie this year. I mean, he had seen a few other games before, I believe, but he had such a hot start to the year. And like he's such a good depth player for the Kings. So I think if that's going to be a big thing for the Oilers. Our third line, our bottom six is contributing offensively, but not to the level that the Kings' third and fourth lines do. And so like, I, I really think that third line battle, whether it's Bukestad or Ryan McLeod centering it, that they're going to have their hands full with that Kings' third line. Yeah, yeah, good point there too. And uh, for me, I'm looking at the two guys that came over from the Columbus Blue Jackets, Vladislav Gavrikov and... Uh, Jonas Corposello. Uh, the Oilers have had Corposello's number throughout the majority of his career, but uh, Corposello did get the better of the Oilers a couple times this year as both a member of the Blue Jackets, and he's performed well against them uh, with the Kings, too, since coming over in the trade. Gavrikov, you know, he was one of the better shutdown defensemen on the trade market while still chipping in about half a point per game, so I think he makes them better on the blue line as well. I don't think it's going to be uh, the difference between the Oilers' top guns being able to create a, a ton of offense, but it certainly does make them at least better defensively than they were before. And uh, of course, as we talked about, they are getting a bit healthier. We'll we'll have to see who's all going to be ready to play for game one or not. Um, all right. Uh, a year ago, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl played together on the same line. Um and oh, Ryan, so I didn't go to you too, did I? About your your pick. About my pick. 
No, no, I, I did get your pick. Sorry, sorry. Getting getting confused here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at, as I was saying, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl played together on the same line for the majority of the Oilers' playoff run last year after Dreisaitl suffered a high ankle sprain when he was hauled down to the ice by Mikey Anderson. We know there's going to be line matching going on in this series, especially when the Oilers are on the road and the Kings have last change. Uh, former Oilers head coach and now Kings bench boss Todd uh, McClellan is going to be looking to get Anze Kopitar and Philip Deneau out there against McDavid and Dreisaitl as much as possible. Should Oilers head coach Jay Woodcroft consider loading up the top line again with McDavid and Dreisaitl in an effort to overwhelm the Kings offensively? Uh, Ryan, what do you think? If they do that, I don't think it'll necessarily be about trying to overwhelm the Kings because I mean, no matter what we do, like we're just better at scoring goals than they are. That's just the way it is. But it, I think it'll all depend on how the matchup between Connor McDavid and Philip Deneau is going. I mean, like the big reason that they got that Connor and Leon got put together last year was because of Leon's ankle injury that he just sustained in Game Six. Right, and then you know, Drysaddle had to play the wing because he couldn't skate well enough to play center, and he was just able to facilitate well enough from the wing to do the damage that he did. But uh, if Philip Deneau has proven to do quite well against Connor in the past, um, like Deneau was no slouch defensively. The, the Kings brought him in for a reason, and if Connor is seeing it being a little bit limited in some in some of the early games, then. Yeah, it's a possibility to put Leon on his line to try to take Deno out of the series. But then you got Andre Kopitar centering his own line. And so do we put Newton Hopkins and, and Hyman or whoever you want to go against Kopitar? I mean, I think they can handle themselves, especially the way that New just played this year. But I think there's just that little chess match. So I, I think Deno will have a big say in that. Uh, and Regu, should the Oilers reunite the dynamic duo on the top line, or does it make more sense to spread out the offense? Yeah, I think I think Lotsy made a really good point there about the reason why they were lined up together last season, just due to the injury. I think the biggest difference this year is the Oilers have also done a good job at improving their overall depth. Um, they do have the ability to depth score, while maybe the depth scoring isn't as much as Gabriel Velarde's 23 goals. Um, our, I feel like our third lines and fourth lines can match well. And um, I think the most important thing that's going to have to happen in this series to dictate how Woodcroft does make those decisions is going to come down to who scores first. Um, the, the Kings are one of the best trap hockey teams there is. They play that one, three, one system. Well, they try to frustrate you through it. And I think as long as you're playing an even strength match, you don't need to put McDavid and Drysaddle together because they both have abilities to make strength plays when leading their own lines. We've seen what Drysaddle, Kane, and Yamamoto have done in this last stretch of 20 games that I don't think you need to kind of go down that path. And if you're chasing the game, then, then yeah, you got to change up tactics. Um, that's going to be an interesting battle here too. It's, it's mentor versus mentee. Uh, they've uh, Woodcroft's got the win over his previous mentor, but this is, this is now the time for Todd McClellan to kind of push back on that. So it'll be interesting to see how that overall chess match goes. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure Woodcroft would like to get the better of him again this year, too. <laughs> um, and, and also, that's that's a good point. It could depend on 
what the what the score is in the game because you know the Kings are the type of team that want to get a one nothing or two nothing lead and just sit on it for the rest yeah. of the game. They won't. Ha- they'll always have one player back, as you mentioned, in that one three one formation and just try to not give up anything defensively. So. I think as long as the Oilers can get an early lead, it sort of forces the Kings to push offensively and play a little more loose. And that's what they have to do. They have to get them out of their sorts because if the Oilers can get that early lead, they're not going to be able to play the type of hockey that they want. And that sort of will lend itself more in the Oilers' favor. So I'm hoping that that's the direction the the games will go and that it's not going to be a game where they're chasing and then potentially have to put McDavid and Dreisaitl back together. Because for this team to really reach its full potential and achieve what they want, and that's ultimately winning a Stanley Cup, I think McDavid and Dreisaitl have to be on separate lines. So mm-hmm. if you're going to eventually have to play like that in the Stanley Cup final, I think you should be getting used to having to play like that in the first round of the playoffs too. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, so last spring, McDavid and Dreisaitl each had historic playoff performances, the likes of which we haven't seen since Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. McDavid and Dreisaitl finished first and second in playoff scoring with 32 and 32 points respectively in just 16 games. Guys, give me your predictions for how many goals and points you think McDavid and Dreisaitl will score in this series. Regu, go ahead. Okay, you're talking about combined total points? No, uh, I want uh, their goals and points for each one of them, please. Goals and points for each. Okay, Um, this will be interesting. So I'll give you my prediction first. I think this series will go to six because I think LA can kind of steal a couple games. So with that in mind, I think McDavid will score four goals in this series and have a total of 12 points. And I think Dreisaitl will score uh, six goals in this series and have a total of 12 points. So sort of maintaining that two points per game pace that they had a year ago. Yeah. Uh, And Ryan, how about you? How many goals and points for each of them? Mm, I think it's going to be a lower scoring series. Like that that two points a game from the playoffs last year included that ridiculous Calgary series where goals are coming like crazy. Um. I agree with Ragu on on the Oilers in six. I'll say three goals for Connor and nine points. And for Leon, I'll say five goals and eight points. Why not? Okay. And I was going to save that question for later, but since we're all discussing it now, I'll just jump in and I'll say I've got the Oilers in six games too. Um, Looking at it, there's no reason to think that these guys are going to slow down by any means. I think that they can maintain that pace, especially if they do get on the power play. Uh, We've seen how efficient it's been all season long, and it's even gotten better since the trade deadline when Bouchard was elevated into Barry's old role. So I'm thinking that there's no reason that they couldn't be two points per game again as well. So not to be sort of boring, but I'll have a very similar answer to you guys. I, I have dry scoring a little bit more. I think that he will probably get, I'll say five goals and 12 points in the series. I think we could see maybe McDavid with four goals and 13 points, because I, I have a feeling that guys like Zach Hyman, they're going to be looking for him a lot on the power play too. Uh, we could see Ryan Nugent Hopkins using his shooter's mentality a little more. So 
would it be great to have McDavid and Drysdale each averaging a goal per game in the first round? Yes, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if it does. But I think that the offense is going to be spread out as to who's the one actually putting the puck in the net too. So I could see McDavid, Drysdale, Nuge, Hyman all even in that four to five goal range in the in the first round. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I I, I think the biggest thing will be how many power plays and penalty kills are happening in this series. If they call everything very tight, it, it might be as low scoring as Lotsy was saying. Uh, so it but, all comes down to how the games go. Oh, we got to remember too, the, like the, uh, the Kings had our number on, on our power play. They did quite well against us on their penalty kill. Like if you look at it on paper, yeah, we're the league's historical best power play. And mm-hmm. the Kings had a pretty low. They didn't they break through until low. the last game of the season series. The Oilers exactly, finally yeah. broke through with two goals, I believe. Nugent Hopkins uh, opened the scoring, and then Drysaddle got the late one. So yeah, I mean, so they, like they, at least, they, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, the Kings they they can defend our power play. I mean, like it, our guys are so good, they're going to break through eventually if you give them enough chances. But the Kings have held their own more than held their own. And then, as Raghu said, playoffs come, the whistles go away a little bit more. Power play may not be as big of a factor as we think. True. I I am hoping that we are starting to see a little bit more playoff or more power play opportunities in the playoffs than maybe earlier in McDavid and Dreisaitl's career. The the first two years in this four-year stretch that they made it back against Chicago and Winnipeg were awful. I mean, McDavid couldn't draw a penalty to save his life in those series. We started to see that change a little bit last year uh, when they went to the conference final where uh, he was at least able to <laughs> draw something, but there, there's still going to be a ton that are going to be missed. You have to just hope that the refs maybe even call a third of the infractions that happen. And I'm probably even being a little too optimistic with that number, but if, they, <laughs> if, I mean, if part of it's like, this is what McDavid's ninth year in the league now, like, Eighth, he, he eighth year. So like he's starting to earn the respect of all the officials with with all of his accomplishments. And I think the run to the conference finals last year just helped with that a little bit more. So I, yeah, I think we'll see a few more. Like it was, it was ridiculous that he didn't get yeah. calls in the first. I, I was gonna say I don't know if either of you guys heard the Thirty Two Thoughts interview that Jay Woodcroft did, but he kind of talked about how the leadership mentality has has evolved a lot with Connor over this stretch and and he's only been his coach for a la- latter half of last season and and this season but um just he he was talking about that leadership goes to even interactions with the refs and trying to understand okay what what's going to get called what's not going to get called he's he's taken that approach he's no longer a rookie in this league he he demands answers and he demands the same work ethic that comes from his teammates. And that's, that's one of the best things to see about Connor outside of the fact that he's still blowing all the stats out of the water. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Jay also was Connor's assistant coach for the first three years of his NHL career. So he would have still seen him uh, as a teenager compared to now before going to Bakersfield for four years. Yeah. Good point. But, but you know, going, uh, l- looking at uh, the whole thing about earning the respect of the officials. I actually discussed this with Josh from tough call podcast uh, a couple weeks ago 
when he was on the show. And I said, it's such a ridiculous statement that you have to like earn the respect of the officials after being in the league for a certain amount of time. I mean, by the time McDavid was 21 years old, he'd already won two scoring titles. And the only other player in the history of the game to accomplish that by age 21 is Wayne Gretzky. So if that doesn't earn you the respect of the, of the NHL refs by age 21, I don't know what more he could have done. You just is, is it more important to be a third line grinder for a decade than the, the 20 year old who's the Art Ross trophy winner? I, I just don't get that. <laughs> I I agree with your first statement that it's ridiculous that guys have to earn the respect of the officials to earn penalties. Like, call the rule book. If if an infraction is made, make the call. Yes. (laughs) I don't care who it's on. (laughs) And another thing we talked about, too, is that hockey really is the only sport that has a different rule book for its postseason. I mean, if you look at Major League Baseball, it's not like there's a smaller strike zone. Uh, yeah. in the playoffs when you look at um regular i know you're a big basketball fan too uh are fouls called any differently in the nba final than they are during the regular season not not from what i've seen and i was even going to make a bigger reference like i know you just mentioned basketball but if if either of you watched the super bowl this year the 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 last play of the game which was the which was a holding call given everything considered that really dictated the final whistle and how the chiefs won was something that some people are like, that should not be called in the playoffs or in the super bowl. And I remember seeing that too. Yeah. And it's, and that was a legitimate call and they called it. So some people will be angry that something like that gets called and other people are like, well, that's what they called in the regular season. So it's good that they're calling it the same. Exactly. You can't just say, well, a little bit of pass interference is okay. (laughs) It's the super bowl, you know, it's just, yeah. I, I think the biggest comment I did want to make, though, was last year's playoffs, I did feel like the refs started to veer more towards the skilled players drawing the infractions than those third and fourth line grinders. It it might not be where all of us have wanted it for a long time, but it was nice to actually see power plays being called um, outside of even the series we were a part of. I think that. The, the Tampa and the Leafs series was like that. The Tampa and the Florida series was like that. So it was it was good to see at least that those calls were were starting to happen. Uh, I just hope that that's kind of the direction we're headed and not just a one-off. Yeah, because you would think that McDavid would lead the league in penalties drawn every year. Yep. <laughs> the, yep. you know, the most skilled player in the world who has the puck on his stick the, the most amount of time, just when he makes a quick turn and a player is forced to kind of grab him at the last second or hook him or hold him to stay with him. You'd like to see those calls made more consistently than not, but I, I, I still see, I, I'm sure you guys are noticing this too, that they, they get missed or as I like to say, ignored quite often. I think yeah, they're I think more the ignored. Have, yeah, I think the Oilers would have 15 power plays a game if they call it everything. And yeah. that's what and that's what Josh said. He he said, "Well, uh, people will say, oh, they, you know, well, how, you can't give the Oilers that many power plays." And he's like, "Well, then be better. You know, don't don't just say, well, they can't give the Oilers constant power plays, so they they have to let them get away with some." It's like, no, tell the players to you know stay within the rules. If they don't want to be shorthanded for half the game, then don't commit 
uh, infraction after infraction. So anyway, we could probably go on for another half an hour about this, but we'll uh, we'll move on to the next topic here. Uh, so last year, the Oilers had 40-year-old Mike Smith in goal for what turned out to be his final playoff run in the NHL. This year, it will be 24-year-old Stuart Skinner between the pipes for his first playoff run in the NHL. Are you more confident with Skinner and Net going into the playoffs than you were with Smith a year ago? Ryan, I'll go back to you. Short answer is yes, but I'll elaborate. <laughs> um, I mean, Mike Smith save percentage throughout last year wasn't spectacular. I mean, like he got hot at times, but overall wasn't great. But like even in the playoffs, the last two rounds, he was under 900 for a save percentage. Like he wasn't that great. Uh, he didn't need to be in the Calgary series because we kind of dominated that one. And against Colorado, we we hung on for most of those games. We, we lost three of them by one goal, but ultimately it just wasn't enough. But uh, it, there's three other key reasons why I think I'm more confident with Stuart Skinner than Mike Smith last year. And they're Cam Ward, Matt Murray, and Jordan Bennington. All guys that came into their teams either as rookies or like started the playoffs got thrown in the mix all of a sudden and then won Stanley Cups in their rookie years. So it's in, we've seen multiple times in the salary cap era and what, as recently as 2019 where a team has gone and won a Stanley Cup with a rookie goaltender. Yeah, and of course, like the most famous examples going back in time would be like Ken Dryden, Patrick Waugh. I mean... It, it's happened uh, over the decades where where this has you know been an occurrence, and hopefully you know as Oilers fans, we're hoping that history repeats itself again this spring. Uh, Regu, what do you think? Uh, are you more confident with uh, Skinner than you were with uh, Smith last year? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think no one can deny Mike Smith's ability to play the puck, which almost makes him a third defender. Mm -hmm. And that was always huge for us. And I would say if there's one thing Skinner could work on a little bit more is when he does play the puck, it sometimes doesn't work out the way that right. that you you may want. I was at the game in TD Garden in Boston when Pasternak scored that goal with like one second left in the in the period and that was because of uh, miscommunication on the pass but I would say when it comes to Stuart Skinner he won the most games as a rookie he posed multiple shutouts uh, or sorry he 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 got a shutout he um put up a 913 save percentage when all is said and done which is pretty pretty good for someone in their first real season in the NHL and even in defeat he was always one of the reasons we were in the games we were in. So if there's one goalie I have full confidence in going into the playoffs, I would say it's him. So yes, I definitely do feel a lot more confident with Skinner in the net. And if anything does go wrong, Jack Campbell also had some success in the latter part of the season, um, maybe against some weaker opponents, but I thought he found his game as well. So um, I think we do have a secondary option uh, this year, which we might not have if something happened to Smith last year. Right. Yeah. You look at how Jack Campbell played those last couple games against Anaheim, even if he doesn't see another minute of ice time for the rest of the playoffs. I think that just getting a little bit of confidence back for a guy who has been known to, you know, sometimes be down on himself after allowing a, a bad goal or a loss that, uh, 
I think that's going to be big for, for just making him feel more comfortable going into next year, just having a little bit of that feeling of, Hey, I can still do this. And when you look at Mike Smith a year ago, he was came into the playoffs on a huge winning streak. I think he went nine and zero in April um, before the playoff run. Skinner is on a very similar 11, one and one run coming into this year's playoffs. So they, they both played amazing down the stretch. I will say Mike Smith did post back to back or not back to back, but he did post two shutouts in the the playoff series mm-hmm. against the Kings last year. Um, he is a, a veteran netminder who, like you said, is an excellent, maybe the best ever at playing the puck. Um, he he brought a a fiery swagger to the dressing room. Usually, you don't have a goalie as a locker room leader, but he was one of those guys who actually would step up and. And you you heard by all accounts was someone who was a, a big voice in, in that locker room. So um, I think that maybe the high end for Mike Smith at this point of Skinner's career is a, is a little higher than, than Skinner's high end. But I also think that Mike Smith's low end is lower than uh, uh, Skinner's low end. So he's probably somewhere in between that of like, he might not have had uh, the t- as many 10 bell saves as Mike Smith made. But I think that when Skinner, even when he's off his game, he's probably still closer to being a consistent goaltender than Mike Smith was when he was off his game. Yeah. And I, I think the other big thing here is that while we keep using the term rookie because they are rookies in the context of their first season in the NHL, Stuart Skinner has been groomed for a long time. He's 24. He he speaks with composure. He he he's been coached the right way. He doesn't get too high or too low. And one of my favorite quotes he said earlier this season was like, regardless of what the score is, in his head, the score is always zero zero. And the fact that he doesn't just say that, but you can kind of see that in the demeanor of how he treats every save and can move on from like a, a bad goal, like the 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 goal that went in off Bukestad's stick, like that could easily rattle some goalie, but he just comes right back the next shift ready to make the save. So th- those are all the things that kind of give me the confidence and belief in him. For sure. And, and you you look at this guy, like he, he, of course, like you said, he is mature beyond his years, but he's been a winner at every level. He yeah. won in Bantam AAA. He won in the WHL. He won in the AHL. Uh, and now here he is in the NHL. Making This is his first full season in the league. He did play uh, you know, one game two years ago and 14 games last year. But to be here playing as the starting goalie and on the run that he's been on coming into the playoffs, this is what the Oilers needed you know, to have this position solidified going into the most important time of year. And uh, they did go out and try and address the goaltending situation last summer, but ultimately it turned out to be their in-house draft pick that uh, came in uh, was a solution for them between the pipes. So um, he's already a fan favorite in oil country. And if the Oilers do go on to win the Stanley cup this year, obviously it's going to be McDavid and dry at the forefront for their legacies. But um, Skinner winning a Stanley Cup in his rookie year will will make him a, a folk hero in Edmonton, I'm sure. Yeah, I still think he deserves the Calder. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, you make a I'm, case for it. I mean, look at Maddie Beniers. What did he finish with? 57 points? That's right. Now, that's a excellent rookie season, but when you think about some of the 
the top rookie scores that we've seen in the past. It's not like on the level of McDavid, who was over a point per game as a rookie, but only was limited to 45 games due to an injury or, you know, Austin Matthews scoring 40. He's not having one of those type of rookie seasons. And for Stuart Skinner to be the starting goalie on a Stanley Cup contender, uh, you can call it a homer pick if you want, but he would be my pick for the Calder. Yeah, I I would even argue that without him, the, the Oilers, because if, if you break down their seasons in the two halves, they were 21-17-3, and three, I think, in the first half, and then went on an amazing second-half stretch of 29-6-6. Six and six. And with, without him kind of riding the ship in a lot of games and holding us above water with all the injuries we succumbed in the first half of the season and Jack Campbell struggles in the first half of the season – we might be talking about a, a different different season when all is said and done. So I think all those aspects together make him worth that award more more than Beniers for all the other points you made about Beniers and other rookies. Oh, without a doubt. I, I think outside of McDavid and Dreisaitl, he is the team's MVP this year. I, I don't even think it's a it's a question. Ryan, what do you think? I mean. <laughs> Hard to argue that one, but uh, no, I, I fully support Stuart Skinner for the Calder. I mean, when was the last goalie to actually win the Calder? Was it Andrew uh, Raycroft? It was Steve Mason in 2009. Oh, there you go. So, oh, wow. yep. It doesn't happen all that often. So, I mean, maybe this is the year where that could happen just because, like Rigo was saying, there's there wasn't the dominant rookie performance from a guy that's going to be a game breaker in the future. Like I like Matty Veneers, don't get me wrong, but he's not McDavid. He's not an elite <laughs> player. He's not going to be an elite player in this league. And you know, it's kind of, it's crazy. Be a real good player. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that for a team that had four first overall picks in a span of six years, that not one of them won the Calder. I mean, Nugent Hopkins deserved it. He would have won yeah. it if he didn't get hurt and miss 20 games in 2011, 2012. If McDavid didn't miss 37 games in 2015-16, he would have won it. Uh, Yakupov even tied for the the league lead in rookie goals in 2013. Um, it just Taylor Hall also <laughs> got hurt. Like, I mean, three of the four uh, first overall picks they had got injured during their rookie year, and it had an impact on them winning. Uh, but just. Yeah, it would be great for an Oiler to finally bring home the Calder. It's that one award that this franchise has never won, sort of like the Canucks and the Stanley Cup. But <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but uh, just had to get that little jab in there <laughs> at, at Vancouver. I I couldn't make it about the Flames because they have the one, and the Flames have actually won multiple Calders. So it's time for us to finally uh, get the first Oiler player to win that. And I think that at the very least, he he should be a nominee. Yeah, the the last point I just wanted to make on that one, Eric, was that even with what Beniers did, I think, and and all credit to Seattle for making it in the playoffs in their in their second year, um, but offense was, in my opinion, their only non-issue. They have four lines that can score, and I I think Beniers was still the fourth or fifth best player on their team. So I just think that. It wasn't, I think without his production, Seattle still would have made the playoffs. And and that's where I think the biggest difference lies. But every voter has a different perspective on it. I just, I think without Skinner's performance, we, we might be talking about a bit of a different Oilers season if the first half hadn't 
had gone worse than almost a 500 record. So that yeah. those are all the, the aspects I see. And, you know, uh, I, I completely agree with that. And, and since we've already made our predictions for the series, uh, this will be the last one I have for you guys tonight. Uh, when the Oilers made it all the way to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final in 2006, Fernando Pisani enjoyed the greatest two-month stretch of his entire NHL career. Pisani led the league in playoff goals with 14 and playoff game-winning goals with five. Now, on a team with Connor McDavid, it's very unlikely that a player on the third or fourth line will outscore him in the playoffs. But we could still see a role player step up in a big way. Which bottom six forward do you think will exceed expectations for the Oilers this spring? Regu, uh, who's your pick? Oh man, this is a hard one because I just love, I love our bottom six. Like I just love all these players. I think but they all I have double to, digits in goals this year, right? They they do. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. All of them had 10 or more, which was, which was awesome. But if I was going to pick one based more so on the, on the stretch going into the playoffs, I would probably go with Janmark. I think, I think Janmark is feisty. He, he's clearly solid on the penalty kill and he's just been making some of these smartest passes. So if we're talking from a points production standpoint, I definitely think it, I, I definitely think it'd be Janmark. I, I think Costin though, will lead the bottom six and hits. <laughs> <laughs> And Costin did have a great run at one point during the season. I think he, he did. scored, what did he get? Nine goals in a span of 20 games or something like that. He he had that one stretch where he scored the bulk of his goals this season. So, you know, he yep. could be a sneaky pick too. Uh, and Ryan, what about you? Who's uh, your pick for this year's Pisani? Yeah, Yanmark was going to be my guy too, but I'll do something different. Just okay. Just so being different. Um, the cool part about Pisani is he was a local kid too. So mm-hmm. I'll... Uh, I'll go Derek Ryan here. Derek Ryan is he stepped up with lots of key goals and lots of key moments before in this regular season. And uh yeah, we'll see if he can do it in the playoffs too. Yeah, Derek Ryan 13 goals this season, which I mean, for your fourth line center, that's fantastic. I mean, he had more goals than Yamamoto, who at you know, I know he was hurt and was battling things, but I mean, um to outscore some wingers who are playing higher in the lineup and for Derek Ryan to do that, basically all at even strength. There was a couple shorthanded ones. Two shorties. Yeah. <laughs> but just, you know, he's he's had to like work for every single one of those 13 goals. I think he also has a really underrated shot. So uh, he was one that I was thinking about. So I'll also be different and try and go away with him. I'm going to say if if he's fully healthy and back to how he can play, I'm going to pick Ryan McLeod. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember him in the series against Winnipeg two years ago, had some good moments. We've seen him when he's on his game that he does have uh, some underrated offensive ability as well. He had 11 goals in 57 games. I think that now that he's back and playing, we'll see if he's on the third line or fourth line. But I, I just figure that that guy with the speed that he brings, that there could be an opportunity where he just catches a defenseman sleeping and he could get a few little uh, chances behind the play where he can get a good shot on goal because he's just uh, that fast, second fastest player on the team after McDavid. So I'm going to uh, pick Ryan McLeod as uh, this year's Pisani. Yeah, I, I don't think any of these picks we've made here, guys, are wrong. Um, I did have one question that just came to my mind, though. Uh, yeah, and sure. I, I think I know what my answer to this is. But we, we spent a lot of the first half of the season as an 11-7 and seven team. Um, 
what do you guys think Woodcroft will do? I personally think he'll play the 12 and six now because it's, it's not a hampered roster, but do you think that depending on the situation, the circumstance of the, of at least just this first round series that he'll ever consider 11 and seven? Well, it kind of goes back to what I asked you earlier about the, the should McDavid and dry be paired together or not. And I think that we could see on the road, maybe they go with, 11 and seven because of line matches. It, it allows them to get those two out there more often, as opposed to when they're at home and uh, the Oilers do have last change. So I, I see a scenario where they could go with the 11 and seven formation um, when they're, when they're in LA and, and in Edmonton, the more traditional 12 and six. What do you I think? think a lot of it will come down to how much uh, Woodcroft trust Philip Broberg right now. Yeah. Like it, 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 whether you have Broberg in there or whether you have one of the big bottom six guys coming in or even Devin Shore, it's uh, like, do, do you want Broberg's puck moving ability? Do you want his skating or do you want the size of the guy in the bottom six? So I think, I think you had a good point there. I could see Broberg getting into some road games and them wanting a little bit more size at home just because they can play around with the matchups a little easier on uh, or at home. And, they can throw Connor and Leon out there with a, a fourth wing pairing, whether it's Ryan and Costin as an example, right? You know, I think another big thing is jumping out to a, a two nothing lead. Hopefully, they can get a like a, a win both games in Edmonton, going back to LA because mm-hmm. then they they control the series a little more and um, they don't have to make uh, panic decisions. They can just sort of be in control and ride things out. Because if you remember last year, they lost game one in each. Yeah series they played and actually the last time they won a game one in a series was against the Anaheim Ducks in the 2017 second round so it's been a while and it would just be nice for the Oilers on Monday night to come out grab that game and just walk out with a 5-2 win or something like that and just say you know we we took control of this we're not going to fall behind in the series right from the start and then just sort of dictate the play from there yeah and not to I know it doesn't mean much going into the postseason because the regular season is done, but uh, you're going in with nine game win streak. You continue yeah. with the win that becomes your longest win streak, bridging the two seasons together. Right now for, I believe in the eighties, they did win double digits. Uh, if you include playoffs uh, ah, okay. multiple times. Yeah. So, so it won't be like an, uh, it won't be an official record for longest, uh, winning streak but it, uh, it at least you know they matched the uh, they matched the franchise record for longest regular season winning streak with that 50th win also the first yeah. time they've done that since 1987 in the se- uh, season finale as well so a uh, great way to to wrap up the regular season for sure one of the best regular seasons in franchise history guys it's been awesome talking to you tonight uh i don't know about you but i can't wait for game one to get here on monday playoff season (laughs) all right man uh just uh if you can let everyone know where to follow you yeah you can follow me at lots ryan i think is my twitter handle right now yeah i think that's it lots ryan yeah and you can follow me at raj bauer and that's my twitter handle for sure all right guys so everyone please go give ryan and regu a follow um Man, uh, just I can't wait for this. Let's hope that uh, we're doing a podcast again in the summer talking about a Stanley Cup victory, guys.
been something I've dreamed about my entire life. <laughs> All right, guys, have a good one. Yeah, you yeah, thanks, too. Eric. So for Ryan Lotzberg and Regu Sharma, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.